When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, December 26th. It's Boxing Day, so happy Boxing Day. Well, this is our effort to help you with your binging and choices. So today we are re-airing an interview that we had conducted about a documentary called The China Hustle. We've got the director, Jed Rothstein, and his main character, Dan David. You know, essentially, this is kind of like the big short of China. So in the first part of our interview, you'll hear about the whole story, how they uncovered these shady, phony companies. We'll give you a little taste of it with the trailer, and then we'll go straight into the interview. Hope you like it. What is capitalism? It rewards those who work hard, but it also rewards those who take advantage of others. After the mortgage crisis in 08, Everybody's looking to get their money back. China's this exploding market. It blew my mind. Let's invest in it now. Everybody thought, I want to be a part of the China growth story. We're making a profit. $22 million, $100 million, $20 billion. $50 billion. This was simply too good to be true. And it was, there are no good guys in this story. Including me. Over 300 businesses operating in China listed here in the United States. Public traded stock. It was legit. But I believed they're misrepresenting and doing less business than they had claimed. So we went to China to monitor one of these companies. Roads in poor shape. Garbage rotting. A busload of investors shows up. All of a sudden, things get turned on. They leave. All the lights go back off. It's a $150 million company. It's a total fraud. If this one company is so brazenly fraudulent, we have to worry about all of them here in the United States. This is the largest financial crime of the last 25 years. We've never seen a credit buildup that hasn't been followed by a major financial crisis. Hold on to your wallet. The government knows what's happening. That money belongs to mom and pop investors. The reality is they're going to do nothing about it. The bad guys in finance are attracted to greed. I didn't do anything wrong, so I want out of this. You can't even find people that will help us. The best place to be a criminal is someplace with no cops. This is a perfect storm. Hundreds of billions of dollars that just poof vanish. It's everybody. It's every bank. Let's talk about the origins of this film. So where did the idea for this film begin? Jed, did, did you did you hear about this guy named Dan? Did someone come to you with this concept that something weird is going on with people who are investing in Chinese companies? Yeah, one of the producers knew um, John Carnes, who's also in the film, another short seller and investor. She, through John, met Dan and brought the film to uh, Jigsaw, which is where I've done a lot of work 
um, in hopes that Alex Gibney would take it on because he's the sort of master of um, financial films. He did the Enron movie, The Smartest Guys in the Room. He also did that crazy Scientology movie. Exactly. Oof. And um, Alex really loved the story, but he couldn't direct it because he was already committed to some other stuff, but wanted to executive produce it and said, let's see if we can connect Sarah, who is the producer, and Dan with um, one of the other directors in our shop, which turned out to be me. And then the idea for the film and the genesis of the storytelling really began just as I describe it in the movie itself, which is Dan and I met in a TGIFs in Penn Station. Mm-hmm. That's and so romantic. It's so your first yeah. date at TGIF. That's really a bad story beginning. You know, Penn Station. I've been going in and out of it for, for over twenty years, and it just never gets never gets better. No, uh, obviously we're giving up the ha- the ability for TGI Fridays to ever sponsor us right now by throwing them under the bus. It was wonderful. You know what? I, I salute everyone who, who toils there. They're trying to make it work in Penn Station. It's, mm. a, it's a tough spot. It really is. It's a tough spot. So, okay. So, Dan, you are a hedge fund manager. I am. And talk a little bit about how you got involved with investing in China in the first place. Well, so we were investors in the classic sense of the term of value investors and um, done well in the mid-2000s, running up to 2008. Uh, 2008, as you may have heard, was a tough year. Yeah, it's weird. I, I, it does strike me as one of those, hmm, why does yeah. that sound familiar? Yeah, I, it, was, it, was, it was a good couple years running into that, and we we're flat running into September of 2008. And by Flat Nove- meaning what? Like you had no positions on? No, we, we, we were even for oh, the even year. Oh, even for the year. We were, okay. you know, we were up 50% the year before and 50% the year before that and doing well. 2008, it was just really choppy going into September, but we, we managed to stay flat mm-hmm. uh, as far as not up or down. But by November, we were down 79%. 79 Seven nine. Wow. Yeah. So you had a hedge fund, and was it filled with a whole bunch of institutional people, or were they just rich people who had extra money who bet? Well, at on that you? time, it was my partner's hedge fund, and he's a really unsung hero in in this story, Maj Swedan. Uh, there's there was two of us, and there's there's a whole team behind what I did. I could arguably say I'm the least important part of that team. For one reason or another, I end up in the movie, uh, and and it was his fund at the time. And I ran the venture capital part of our business as well as some of the real estate interests. So it, it was a soul-crushing experience for him. And, you know, he, he came to stay with me for a couple of weeks. And I said, okay, tell me about your side of the business now because I'm now going to have a part in everything we do, including your side of the business. And he explained to me about value investing. And I basically said, look, we shouldn't change anything about what we do because it worked for you for 20 years. And let's stick with this model. Let's let's consider these last two months an anomaly in the market, and it was, and go back to value. And when we looked at value in 2009, almost everything was in China. A China-based company listed on our U.S. exchanges. So we thought, like anybody else, if it's listed on our exchange, they're you know, regulated by the SEC. The exchanges do their diligence. The investment banks do their diligence. They have a big four auditor. We had no reason to suspect anything. And we invested almost everything into these China-based companies long uh, and picked up 229% in 2009. Whoa. Okay. And so how did you get information? Because um, notably, the 
the Chinese market itself is sort of opaque. The fact that it was had a U.S. listing, you yeah. uh, presume that you know it sort of has compliance hurdles that it's been reached. But if I wanted to buy a Chinese company, I am precluded from doing that. I can't go invest in a Chinese-based company from the Chinese uh, market because they have the A and the B, and and it's really hard to invest overseas. So your idea was if it's here, right. it's kind of cleared this right. regulatory hurdle. And Correct. at least we know that it's kind of maybe not be the best investment, but at least it's not, uh, you know, some fly-by-night crazy, you know, Joe's, no, I, Joe's I, I, investing. We we felt it was the best investment. And we, we did the same due diligence at that time that we would do on any U.S. listed company based in the, in the United States. Uh, so we interviewed CEOs, CFOs. We, we talked to competitors. We channel-checked and things of this nature. The difference being to clear these regulatory hurdles here in the United States, it's really about filling out paperwork. And it's really about, you know, having your legal team and your auditors who are just checking paperwork. They're not actually developing the audit. You turn in the numbers and they look at them. And remember that just in in speaking to, like we just mentioned Enron very briefly, Jed, that like you would imagine that if you are telling this story and you say, hey, look, it's a listed company. Right. Was it surprising to you to learn how, in fact, these companies became listed in the United States? Honestly, when I began this, I didn't really understand the concept that dozens or hundreds eventually of Chinese companies could be listed on U.S. exchanges. And so it was really eye-opening to see the mechanics of that, which are quite complicated. Um, It was also interesting to to see how the we're really living in a 21st century economy where capital can flow across borders instantly. Uh, But what I found in making the film is that the regulatory framework and the rules of the game of capitalism that are supposed to keep it fair and transparent are kind of stuck in the 20th century. And to me, that's a sort of big takeaway from this uh, this whole story. It's less about the specifics of what happened in this set of frauds and problematic companies and more about what kind of system do we want to have. If we want to have uh, a global market, which I think is probably good and probably inevitable, we should really think about policing it in a way so that it uh, where we can be reasonably sure that what we're looking at is w- what it claims to be. And the interesting thing, Dan, is that when we look at how those companies were able to kind of use their own sidestep regulators in general, was the, the premise was, let's find some shell company in uh. the U.S., this company had already been a public company, right. but it really didn't have any assets anymore. And right. let's do, did they do a reverse merger? Is that how they did it? In many cases. Some of them were IPOs. Uh, but in many cases, it's a much. It costs a lot less to reverse merge into a company, and and in in all fairness, Berkshire Hathaway is a reverse merger. I mean, so it can go fine, uh, but in, in these cases, you spend anywhere from a hundred to three hundred thousand dollars on a what they would call a clean shell, which means it has no litigation attached to that old former company, and you reverse merge your company into it, and you don't have as many of the audit hurdles uh, or regulatory hurdles that you would have in an IPO. And as a result, when you are looking, when you as as an investment advisor or, or a chief investment officer of a hedge fund or a yeah. private equity firm, you're looking at it, you say, here's the filings, right. here's the numbers. Right. You don't know whether or not these are complete baloney or not. 
Right. I mean, because they've been filed. Right. You, I presume, started from the premise like these are the numbers. Well, I start from the premise that the you take these numbers at face value, uh, especially when they're when they're not guidance or outlook. These are these are actual empirical numbers of what they say they did in the past, and and you work backwards into if they're lying, there are repercussions. Uh, people from Enron and WorldCom, Tyco, they went to jail. That doesn't happen so much anymore, but that's a whole other segment. Uh, and, and then you, you find out that it's not illegal in China to steal from an American citizen. I could point to a case where Ming Zhao from Putacol stole $450 million from U.S. investors. Uh, we exposed that. And a year later, he was appointed to provincial Congress. Oh, my God. So you're not elected to Congress there, right? You're appointed. So they'll, they'll literally pin a medal on you for stealing a half a billion dollars for U.S. investors. So let's go back. You go 2009, you make 200. So you didn't go out of business in 2008, so that was good. Yeah. 2009, you make 229%. And then what, what's the next part of this? I mean, you've, you're yeah. killing it. Well, there were critics like uh, Carson Block from Muddy Waters and Alfred Little. Uh, who was John Carnes, uh, that were saying a lot of companies that we had invested in and maybe we had gotten out of these companies because they had a price target, not because we thought they were fraudulent, but because we bought it at nine and sold at 28 or whatever it was. They were saying they were frauds. And, and my partner Maj and I got together and we said, look, we were either good at what we do or we were lucky and we need to figure that out or we're going to be out of business. So we hired our own China team to prove the short sellers wrong. And we gave them 30 companies to go look at. And they came back and they said the short sellers are wrong. They're understating the problem. Oh, my God. That's, I love the part in the movie where there's a guy who goes up and sort of knocks on the door of the Chinese company and says, hey, I want to give everyone free tea. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'd be so nice. Can I yeah. just bring you some free tea? And you guys had thought, how many employees did they just say they had at that point? Uh, they said they had, you know, say maybe hundreds. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, look, they had one truck driver with, with yeah, <laughs> the, and forty uh, people, I believe he said. Yeah, oh, we have forty it, people it was here. Something like ten x uh, of of what it was, and there are all kinds of stories that we have that we have to go through. The tea salesman was a good idea at getting an employee count. So you come to find out that. These Chinese companies, some of which had done IPOs in the U.S., some of which had done reverse mergers and are now listed on U.S. exchanges, that they're basically fraudulent endeavors, that they're they're kind of yeah. saying, hey, uh, you know, it's as if it's like the, the Jill Trading Co. from China, right. from Shanghai, is setting up and I do a reverse mer- merger and I... I then what? How do I get people to invest in this fraudulent? Because there's a part of this that's like you got to have a pimp. So who's the pimp in the story? Well, number one, the pimp finds the product. So a Chinese chicken farmer doesn't wake up one day and understand how to defraud the U.S. capital markets. Good point. So people from the United States go there to any kind of B-level operator and say, what could you do with $50 million? Mm. And this... B-level operator will say, well, my business would be this big, and imagine my I'm holding my hands way out. And the pimp, as you call them, says to them, look, all you have to do is tell everybody your company's already that big. We'll give you the money, and then you can build it out. Nobody's going to get hurt. And by the way, if you get caught, you did nothing illegal in China, so you can't be prosecuted. 
And if you get caught in the U.S., then what happens? In other words, if you lie to the mm-hmm. SEC, mm-hmm. what happens? If you're a Chinese person? Uh, nothing. nothing. I mean, they, they, they no don't have the ability they to enforce yeah. subpoenas. That if you come here, um, they can. No, they'll put you on a plane and send you home. Now, here, you go straight to jail. Do not pass go, and you've got to post bail or something of that sort, but no. And the ironic thing is when we catch U.S. people stealing from China investors, like the EB-5 program, which is a pathway to citizenship for Chinese, they've caught you know, half a billion dollars worth of theft of Chinese citizens. Our government has done the right thing and taken that money back and made the Chinese citizens whole. Hmm. Which I take exception with. I I think we should put that money in escrow and say to the government of China, here's what we've taken back from our criminals, and we'll make your citizens whole. You do the same. They get the companies, they list, they get them out to the public, and then uh, it's sort of like, it's a little bit like uh, a boiler room almost, that like they've got to set up a shop where they can now distribute these ideas and get people to invest in them. So what is the distribution mechanism for these Chinese companies that are pretending to already have the $50 billion? There were there were a, a cadre, a cartel, call it, of deal makers, law firms, auditors. And, and really what it became is for the savvy investor, say somebody who took the short side of the sale, you just, you just say, okay, so they have this auditor. Now let's look into, which is somebody we know that has bad companies in the past. Let's look at the bank they use. Okay, that's two strikes. Let's look at the law firm they use. Okay, that's three strikes. And then you develop a profile based upon that. And, and you pretty much know that when they use three or four of these kinds of firms, that there's there's probably some there there and you could spend some money looking into them. Okay, that was part one of our interview with the China Hustle director, Jed Rothstein and Dan David. The China Hustle is available on Hulu, Amazon Prime and iTunes. Tomorrow we'll air the second part. You'll love it. I'm telling you, this movie is really good. As always, we want to remind you to wash your hands, to wear your masks, to maintain your physical distancing, and please put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. We'll talk to you tomorrow.